0: I'm Brie, one of the co-founders of Frank Body. Hi, I'm Jess, one of the co-founders of Frank Body. Welcome to Selfish, a podcast that is all about putting yourself first and redefining the word selfish. Over this content series, we're exploring a variety of topics with some amazing faces that you'll know, from self-awareness with Brooke Lurton to self-discovery with Jackie Gillies. We're also talking about self-pleasure with Chantelle Otten and self-wealth with the incredible Victoria Divine. Podcast episodes for Selfish drop weekly on Tuesdays alongside a whole bunch of amazing tools, tips and tricks from our team that you can find across the Frank Body social channels. Find us wherever you listen to your podcasts and let's get selfish together. We just interviewed the incredible Victoria Devine. For those who don't know, she is an award-winning and retired financial advisor, best-selling author, and host of Australia's number one finance podcast, She Is On The Money. She's also the founder and co-director of Zella Money. V is, I'm going to say a really bad pun, a
1: wealth of knowledge. Um, She's so smart and just not gatekeepy at all about anything and very passionate about Financial Literacy for Women, which is why we wanted to have this episode because you and I are also very passionate about this topic. It's something that comes up in the Frank Body Office a lot when Mm. we're talking about educational tools that we can provide to our audience, even though it's got nothing to do with what we typically do day-to-day, making body care products. We know it's so relevant to our 20 and 30-something audience. And Mm. we've both gone through our own journey of financial literacy.
0: Yeah, we've both always said you create the life you lead and you know for us that was starting a business but there's so much more to it than just that there's so many different ways you can create your own wealth and I think that was what was so interesting about this topic was it was you know we talked about everything from breaking down all of these stereotypical boundaries that we've had it's really in the last few decades that women have been allowed into this world like it wasn't actually that long ago that women weren't allowed to apply for credit cards or get bank loans without a bank guarantee from a male spouse it's pretty ridiculous isn't it and We've even
1: seen those conversations amongst our friends only start to take place in recent years. So there's a, you know, we've got hundreds of years worth of catching up to do as women and it's so nice that there are finally resources dedicated to us as women because we are on our own unique journey and we do have our own unique experience of the world so it's a great episode for anyone whether you feel like you're right at the beginning of your journey around self-wealth and financial literacy or even if you know things we are big believers in never assume you know everything go back to basics and relearn 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 and so pour a glass of wine go for a walk do whatever it is that's going to get you in the mood because it's a really great episode with victoria divine
0: we hope you enjoy. Hi Jess. Hello Bree. We're here today with Victoria Divine. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're very excited for this conversation and we've read your book we know a lot about you but we know there are some of our listeners who might not know that much about your background so we thought to get started would you mind giving us a quick synopsis of who you are (laughs) exactly stand up in front of the class and introduce yourself (laughs) you're the newbie exactly
2: Um, you are correct hi my name is Victoria and I am an ex-financial advisor Um, I run a mortgage-breaking business here in Melbourne but you will Probably, if you know me already, you probably know me from the podcast, She's on the Money, which is the number one business and finance podcast at the moment in Australia, which is kind of cool. It's so fucking cool. It's kind of <laughs> cool. Um, I don't know how we've done it. I still have massive imposter syndrome. I'm like, someone's going to come in and be like, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> but that's okay. I've just got a lot of audacity to make up for the imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, I guess, me in a nutshell. My background is actually in psychology, which marries really nicely with the finance and I am wildly passionate about empowering especially women Mm -hmm. when it comes to understanding finances and the power behind finance because I don't think until now we've ever been let into this space Mm -hmm. and not only have we not been let into this space it's really dry and boring so I try really hard to make it interesting so that at least the impact
0: is lasting so um, yeah that's what I do and where I come from and a quick background. That's amazing actually We pulled some stats when we were doing research for this and this one really stood out to me. It was only in 1971 that the Bank of New South Wales, now Westpac, became the first to grant loans to women without requiring a male guarantor.
2: Isn't it crazy? It blows my mind. I use more (laughs) (laughs) obscene language to describe (laughs) it personally. And it it was much later than that that women were allowed credit cards because we can't be trusted. (laughs) And I remember starting my business and, you know, I feel like, I have always been so well supported by so many beautiful women and like my mum is one of them and they would always just be like I'm from Tasmania so like you could be quite you know sheltered coming from Tassie but my mum's always like whatever you want to do you can do it you can be anything you can do anything and I remember starting my business and being like oh I'm doing this 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 and this and my mum's like do you know that when she started like a business when she was 21 she bought a general store in Tasmania she's like I wanted to start this business but her dad had to co-sign on her loan to like buy the business and I was like wait what but what's your dad got to do with this like what would my grandpa like have to say because if you know my family you would know that my grandpa was a farmer who dropped out at grade nine and was dyslexic so my grandma did all of the budgeting and the cash flow and the management of the farm so I was like that makes no sense and mum's like that's the world I lived in oh
1: yeah well, I insane right like we still live in mm. some version of that world I remember buying my first house Brie and they asked me that when I was popping everything through for my loan, who helped me buy the house? Like there was just an me. assumption. Me, I helped me. You know, I mm. worked my ass off and saved and saved and saved and saved. I had no contribution from my family. Not that if you do, great, good for you. Uh, money win for you. Exactly. But the assumption there oh. that a single woman where buying did your a house, come where from? did it come from? <laughs> Who gave it to you? And there was the underlying message that it must have come from my did dad. Did you forget
2: to put your partner's details know, on the
1: application? Honey. You
2: left some <laughs> information oh. off.
1: It was very much like that, and even later on with my husband asking him to guarantor a loan when he was at the stay-at-home parent in our in our family and not working it's at that time, so and funny. I was the breadwinner. I'm like, why? Wh- I remember why our, <laughs> this makes no physical sense <laughs> i remember looking for our first property in my um
2: then boyfriend and i were buying together now husband and we'd go to all of these you know open homes and have a look at these like great homes and i would be completely ignored oh yeah and oh, my God. husband would be like oh, i don't know you should ask her like she's the financial advisor mm-hmm. she's the one that set the budget she's the one that's actually done all the research on the sub. she's why we're here mm. like my husband's always like, I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> like, it's actually wild how many just like disregarded me and went straight to my husband to ask questions or you'd be at the bank talking about something and they would literally face their entire body to my husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, I've got a staunch feminist husband and he'd be like, you're talking to the wrong person. Oh <laughs> and I would always be like, yes, yeah, <laughs> like... <laughs>
0: This is why I married you. Yes, King. (laughs) So obviously we're going up against years and years of gender bias. Yes. And learning how to break that down. And I think financial literacy is something that we've spoken about a lot. And I'll put my hand up and say it's something that I still need to work on. How did you get into a career in finance? Accidentally. Like I I wish I could say, oh my gosh, I just always knew
2: that i was wildly passionate about finance um i think i should have seen it coming i'm born on the 30th of june so i'm an end of financial year baby my dad is an accountant like it's kind of in a way written in my stars (laughs) but i think if you step back a little bit i wanted to be a psychologist And I went through two degrees, you know, was working in the space of organizational psychology, kind of loved it, but hated how immeasurable the impact was. Like you guys are business owners, you would talk about employee engagement mm. and culture all the time. It's kind of like a feels mm-hmm. thing. It's not really like a measurement thing. And that was the space I was working in. So one thing that I really struggled with was kind of benchmarking and going, we have changed because mm. like a survey of how your employees feel today is gonna be different to how they feel tomorrow. Yep. Mm so hard to measure and at the time I was terrible with finances so like I kind of flew through my degrees quite young got it done was the youngest consultant working in this like very corporate team and you know I thought I was a big dog I earned like $55,000 including superannuation and it was the biggest salary I'd seen in my entire life I thought I had made it at that point point. Ah, uh, so obviously I went to Saba and bought a whole heap of suits of so did. I could yeah. fit Saba. in, and Classic. then Saba's gateway drug to Scanlan things. <laughs> to step
1: uh, up to Scamlin. I was yep. a step
2: up. You've <laughs> got to make the step up, but obviously on a fifty-five thousand dollars salary, that's not reasonable and then I wanted to do all this other stuff with my life Mm -hmm. I was like well I do obviously I'm a bit nerdy I don't know if that's coming across yet but I wanted to do my MBA and then through my MBA I got offered a exchange program in France and I was like well I want to do that but I had no money because I'd spent it all at Scanlon Uh, so the next best thing obviously you get a personal loan so by the age Mm -hmm. of 22 I was in $45,000 worth of personal Uh debt on a $55,000 salary you can probably tell that was pre royal commission. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say. Yeah, because that, that happened. Yeah. That's now probably illegal. <laughs> um, but I was in this massive pickle. I wasn't sleeping properly. It, I didn't realise how heavy it would weigh on me when mm. I signed up for it. Because mm. in my head I was like, "Great, now I can do everything I want to do." But then you have these monthly repayments that stop you from living the rest of your life and going out with girlfriends. Like you just don't have any money to do anything because. You can either miss your debt mm. repayment or you could go out for coffee mm-hmm. and i was 22 you know what one i wanted to do 100%. so i couldn't sleep i just had literally the worst mental health at that point in time and i realized i needed to get my financial stuff together so I started looking into it and one of my clients was a financial advisor mm. and obviously i was never going to tell the client that i was in that position however learning financial literacy through, I guess, being in that that office because I got seconded to that office, seeing what financial advisors could do, seeing the power of super, seeing mm. the power of saving and investing and, you know, maybe being a little bit ashamed of my debt, which now sounds silly. But at the time I was just embarrassed. And so I completely restructured my finances, you know, made mm. some really hard decisions so I could pay it off, did pay it off but I think that's what taught me the power of finance. It wasn't you know, oh, you can get money and it's really fun to live a good life. It was like, oh my gosh, I can sleep now. Mm -hmm. It was, oh my gosh, like I can now create the life that I wanna have. Oh my Mm. gosh, I didn't realize how much power there was in superannuation. Mm. And I became so annoying. Like all my girlfriends at brunch, I'd be like, "Mm, Jess, have you heard of this? So (laughs) super is very sexy. And then you'd be like, I wanna talk about the weekend. And I'd be like, "Mm mm-hmm. So let's get out an investment, like compound calculator. (laughs) So not the coolest curl ever, but yeah, I guess one thing led to another and I realized I was just wildly passionate about this and kind of decided to take the leap from that psychology role into a finance role and work my way up and decided that. I was, you know, audacious enough to start my own business in it, and it, it worked.
0: So, oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's I guess how I got to where I am now. That's incredible. And I think what you said then about having those conversations mm-hmm. with your girlfriends is important it because doesn't it doesn't happen. And I do think it's an inherently female thing. Yeah. When I go to boys' lunches, there's a lot more talk of stocks and what people are investing in, and even talking about their super. Actually, this is a fun thing I was talking to my husband about. Um, just to dive straight in, <laughs> get my own personal finance, finance advice while I'm here, <laughs> yeah. we were comparing our super accounts and is significantly larger than mine, which, yes, he's older than me and, yes, he hasn't taken Matt leave twice, but even when we did the calculations, he's still significantly up on me because he self-manages yeah. and I have done what I thought I was supposed to do, which is put it in an account and forget about it until I retire. Yeah. And as I said before, I'm putting my hand up being like, I know this is a problem, but I don't even know the first step of yeah, like how and it's to approach kind of bland.
2: that. <laughs> like why would you do that when there's so many other things? Like you've got two kids to go and chase. Like mm. I don't particularly want to call Australian Super and have a chat with them because <sighs> no. like I don't even know what to ask. I think it's... I think it's cool now because it's as though we've been given permission to step into this space. Mm. Whereas before it's been quite Mm. tightly gate kept. It's like a boys conversation. It's a boys chat and oh, don't worry, you wouldn't understand it, Brie. Like and it's not them trying to be rude. It's them going, Oh, well, you've never spoken about this before. Why would you understand it now? And I think that men in general kind of like to trump themselves and talk about, you know, stocks and, you know, they're super in their investments. But It doesn't mean they know what they're talking about because research tells us that if you compare male and female investors, women are better at investing than men. But we also question ourselves a Mm -hmm. whole heap more and then would never step up and be like, oh, I'm pretty good at that at a barbecue. Like, are you going to turn around and like even in front of your girlfriends be like, yeah, so super. I'm actually really good at that. (laughs) Like we wouldn't do it. We'd be like, oh, yeah, what did you want to know? So I think women and men approach these conversations in such different ways, which has arguably kept us out of the space in addition to all of the other barriers but now it's kind of like let's break it down let's talk about it what about super do you need to understand how do you actually work backwards how much do you need in super you know a lot of the conversation i'm having right now because i am pregnant is from people dming me being like v what are you doing with your superannuation while you're on mat leave Mm -hmm. and i'm in the lucky position where i'm going to keep contributing because i'm not a salaried employee but for salaried employees. I'm like, well, have you spoken to your partner or your husband about them contributing to your super? Mm -hmm. And it's not an easy conversation, but it's one that puts you, but also your family unit first, if that's the plan. And I think, yeah, we should be having these conversations because it shouldn't be awkward. It's just, oh, you're going on mat leave. No worries. So is your partner contributing to your super or have you got this background plan to like, you know, not everyone has the cash flow to do that let's mm. be honest but have you got a backup plan that maybe when you return from mat leave you just pay one or two percent more a year to make up for the time that you are off mm. or you know if you're young and going one day i really want kids can you bump it up
1: so idea. that we
2: get there before the fact so that you're always a bit ahead i think there's a lot of conversation to have around it but there's no right or wrong answer because unfortunately there's no one fit, one size fits all
0: finance Advice. I wish there was. It would make my job so much easier. But even, as you said, just the fact that we need to start talking about it yeah. and thinking about it and taking that control back because a simple thing like super, it can have such a lasting impact. And if you start earlier with compounding and, you know, the interest that you earn, by the time you, you get to that time when you retire, you, you really thank yourself exactly for going back. I'm trying to think what else is relevant for our audience. Oh,
1: my God. There's so many things. <laughs> I I think i'd love to double back on the starting point for conversations because i think that's a really interesting thing to talk about i don't think a lot of whether it's women or people even know the right questions to ask and what is the right safe space to take those first steps in like is it go straight to an expert is it start having those conversations amongst your friends and just dip your toe in and feel a little bit more comfortable because i remember the beginning of my own financial literacy journey very similar to you coming off the back of getting myself into stupid amounts of debt that That's I shouldn't fun, have been allowed to. I mean, I had fun, <laughs> but then I, it wasn't very fun but after. Then it wasn't fun after. <laughs> and you know, I was young, and I didn't. Mm. No one really gave me any kind of structure or education around this. And I got my. I made stupid decisions. I made impulse decisions, very much driven by making myself feel good in the moment, without much thought into what would happen long term. Yeah. I think it's important to set that tone because you could listen to this and be like, oh well, you're three successful business owners, what would you know? No, I've no Everyone in this room has made that financial decisions now. But I think that's why we
2: have to talk about it when we have the privilege of sitting in these chairs. Like as three arguably successful business owners to you know, reflect on. And I remember when I was starting She's on the Money. So I started She's on the Money. It was a little Facebook group off the back of some workshops I did. And people would talk about financial like debt and stuff in my group. And I remember thinking at the time when I was just starting that up, I'm like, oh, that's exactly the position I would be Mm -hmm. in. But my answers in the group were never, I've been there, don't worry. Mm. It would always be like, oh, well, here are the best steps you can take. And it was helpful But what I didn't want to be was that, you know, that leader in that space that then was admitting that they'd had massive amounts of personal debt. I'm like, that doesn't make me look good, does it? But now I think we've really reframed it. And I'm like, hold on. My community is going to be so much more comfortable with me knowing parts of my journey, knowing that I did go through that and I know you because I am you. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually that different. Yes, Mm -hmm. I have a business and that's great, but like I'm not that different to the average bear. And I think that so many times we put on these pedestals. You own a business, right? So you must be like, you've got your stuff so sorted out. You must know everything. And the reality of it is, as someone who is an ex-financial advisor, mainly to women business owners, we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) Like we've just been making it up and we are very impressed that it's worked so far. And we usually just have a lot of audacity to give it a shot. Um, And I think that that needs to be the realistic conversation of like, nah, I went there, fixed it up though, here's how you could fix it up. And so I think those conversations, they don't just start with going to an expert because to me, that's quite overwhelming. You don't know what to ask them. But what we need to remember is that finance conversations do not have to be personal. Jess, you and I could sit down and talk about the importance of loan repayments and what superannuation is. I don't need to ask you what you earn to have that conversation. And a lot of the time, I think we automatically default to money conversation. Ah, I don't want to have that because I'm going to have to tell you my personal situation. You don't have to do that. We can talk about these structures. We can talk about different things. We can talk about, you know smaller savings goals with our friends and family without having to divulge our entire lives like I feel like sometimes when it comes to finance you're like I would never let them see me naked Mm. it's like well you don't have to like we can all wear our robes at the table it's all good (laughs) Um, but we also need to have these conversations so that we're all on the same page and understand it and you can go away and then look at your personal situation and how that works and It's even more beautiful if you're in a supportive environment where you can go, oh, well, actually, hey, can we sit down and have a look at my budget together? I'm so overwhelmed by it. That would be fantastic. But that is definitely not the gateway. That's a lot of trust, a lot of being comfortable Mm. with that conversation. So I think firstly, we need to take a step back and go, well, actually, finance doesn't have to be personal. We can make it
0: personal later once you understand what we're talking about. It's a really good point. It's funny, isn't it, that talking about our salary does still feel really taboo. And even me, I know I would never want to say it out loud. Yeah. Even to my closest girlfriends, I would feel like a weird comparison. Yeah. And it's a fear of people judging you based on how much you earn.
2: And it's definitely, I see this a lot more in female business owners than I do in, you know, salary and PAYG employees right because you know if you say oh i'm a marketing manager you might go i'm on 120 Mm. and people will go oh that makes sense for your role Mm -hmm. or like you know Mm. you might have another friend who's in marketing they're like oh well i'm on 130 like you should be asking for a raise i think i find that business owners because our income is so variable and so based on nothing to do with being salaried (laughs) and like payg we often feel quite guilty. Mm. It's funny because if you ask a male business owner what they earn, they're like, well, last year I did my seven figures, obviously. <laughs> and
1: you're just like, okay,
2: sit down. I love that bro See, Yeah, but like we don't have the bro energy. We're kind of like, oh, like especially as we sort of rise mm. i do have this saying and i love it it's a rising tide lifts all ships Aww, mate that's really my like life that. model <laughs> same same <laughs> if i was a tattoo girly it would be on my body mm. somewhere but i am not um but I, I look at it that way and go yes but i understand why you don't want to share that because mm. the same reason i don't share my income with my community because it actually doesn't help so like if i was a marketing manager Mm. it helps for me to share my salary because my girlfriends and peers can benchmark Mm -hmm. themselves my business is so different to your business what does it do Mm. apart from being gloaty to go oh I made x last year Mm. because it's not comparable and you're not going to step in and be like oh well in that case V, I I might become a finance podcaster and start a mortgage broking Mm. business and you know do all of the it doesn't actually help and it's not constructive and I think that we immediately feel that and go well I could tell my friends but One, I don't want to make them feel bad Mm -hmm. in a way, but two, it's actually not that helpful. Yeah,
1: because it's not not a comparable.
0: No. (laughs) Exactly.
1: While we're on the topic of salaries, I think this is an interesting topic to dive into because most women, in my experience as an employer of, you know, we've employed hundreds of women over the years, The women we've employed struggle to have conversations about salary more than the men we've employed they tend to value themselves less they tend to come to the conversation about negotiating salary without as much rigor or research around it i've found historically female employees maybe get They see one thing, they get stuck on it, and that's what they bring to the table. And it weakens their negotiation position because it's not necessarily based in like a robust argument. It's also not reality. Exactly. Yeah, it's very hard. It's really difficult. And I've been on both sides of that as a previous employee and now as a business owner and always as a woman in both experiences. What would you say to any listener who wants to start that process of renegotiating their salary? I think it's all
2: about research. So research, 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 and having these open conversations. I think sometimes, and this just goes for all people, not necessarily just women, but we look at our role and we have our heart and our soul in it. And we go, I'm so good at this. And as a business owner, I look at it and go, yes, but the way I've valued that role is probably very different to your heart and soul Mm -hmm. way of valuing it. And it's not me trying to be mean or rude when I have this conversation. Let's go back to the marketing manager conversation. Mm. I go, okay, well, I need a marketing manager for my business. Um, I need them to, you know, fulfill these capabilities and, you know, meet these KPIs. And now I'm going to go to market and look at what the benchmark is paying. Is that something I'm comfortable with? And we might in our business agree that that role is worth 120. Mm -hmm. So if you're killing it at that role and that's fantastic, again, not being rude, we have to be realistic. Even if you are the best marketing manager, unless you're gonna step up above that band and add additional value or contribute more, it makes no business sense to give you a salary increase every year for the same KPIs that are being met if mm-hmm. the role hasn't increased. Don't get me wrong, I do think employers need to be looking at making sure that we're increasing salaries with inflation yep. to make sure that, you know, the employee mm-hmm. is actually able to buy the same things that they were able to okay. buy last year. And obviously a lot of roles, like this marketing manager example, it actually could be between 120 and 150. Mm -hmm. And you might go, okay, well, they've come in at 120. They are now growing in that role and adding additional value, we can increase that. So as an employee, I would step back and go, all right, well, let's pretend that this is not my job can I evaluate this role? Am I being paid what the market should be being paid for this role? If the answer is no, and you've genuinely cross-checked, because it's very easy to type in marketing manager mm-hmm. into SEEK and go, well, that one's 250. Yeah. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean that the responsibilities are the same. So cross-checking those responsibilities and KPIs it could be confronting because you could find out that you are being underpaid. Mm-hmm. So I think being really pragmatic about evaluating your role, you might find out that you're on par, you're above par, or you're below. If you're on par, you can always have that conversation about whether there is any wiggle room. But it's actually about articulating your value to your employer and sitting down going like, all right, Jess, really want to talk about my salary. I've done some market research, like here's this, this, and this. But personally... I want to just share with you all of my wins from the year, how I've been really going above and beyond, and what that looks for, and what that looks like, and how, you know, in the next 12 months, I'm going to add even more value. And I think sometimes we walk in and go, well, actually, I deserve a pay rise. Mm-hmm. I was hoping for 10 grand. As a business owner, I'm going to be like, but why? Exactly. And I don't mean to be rude. I have a business to run Mm. like I have to go back and I think a lot of the time employees are also offended when in the moment you don't immediately go yes Mm -hmm. no worries like I have to sit down and go all right does that make sense does it make sense Mm. for your role how does this work and it can be an uncomfortable conversation which is why I think all employers should train themselves in having that chat and actually being able to sit down and be empathetic Mm oh, all right, well, let's talk about your role, knowing full well that mm. you don't have to say yes or no at the end of that conversation. Like, Bree, tell me, like, why, when, where? Oh, where are you getting that from? Oh, that's really interesting. Because it's a learning opportunity for you as mm, well. Yeah. But more often than not, I will come to the end of a conversation like that and go, all right, well, I'm obviously gonna have to think about that. It's a massive decision. Let me go and reevaluate it. And I have had to go back to employees before and said, look, I'm really sorry, but I can't give you that pay rise. But when I do it, I make sure that I go above and beyond with justification as to why and what it would look like to be able to give them that. I think the onus needs to be on both employee and employer. But as women, we don't know how to back ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that often we just need to take a leaf out of a mediocre middle-aged white man's like notebook and go, what would they do? They'd just ask for it, so why not give it a crack? (laughs) But, like, back yourself. And as a female, I think that often when we are backing ourselves and Mm. doing our research, that boosts our confidence to have that conversation. Mm. And I think that if you are a valued employee, I'm sure both of you will agree, I'd prefer to have that conversation than for them to feel so awkward that they leave the business and then you're kind of like, well... I would have had that chat with you like if that was something that you know you were looking for I could have increased your responsibilities to make sure that you could get to that salary Mm -hmm. and I think we've all been in that position where we're like why didn't you just say something because yes your role right now it's not gonna be worth more but if you're Mm -hmm. saying you want more you're actually a great employee I would really love to be able to you know give you a few more responsibilities
1: that do boost your salary so the takeaway is Research is always going to help you. I mean, that's true of pretty much everything in life, isn't it? And if you're well-researched, you're more confident, then you take that confidence into the conversation and the negotiation and always initiate it. If you feel like you need to have that chat, don't just sit on it and do nothing (laughs) exactly your employer employer cannot read your mind and
2: and always know that the worst thing that they can say is no yeah i don't think i've ever as an employer walked out of a conversation like that and been Mm. like i can't believe they've asked for that i've always been like oh interesting like i'll go do some research i'll see what that's like and to be honest as an employer i have so much more respect for you i don't think it's embarrassing even if i have to go back and say sorry no it's not going to work at least you've had that experience of having that negotiation Mm -hmm, so that, you know, in a future role, that can actually be something that you go, no, I've done this before. This is much easier because not every boss is as kind as you guys might be in that conversation. So I think it's, yeah, you're actually giving yourself
0: some experience to like have your own back in the future as Mm -hmm. well.
1: I love Mm -hmm. that advice.
0: So obviously working on how you can increase your salary is one way to build your own personal wealth. But there's other ways, and you've obviously spoken about this before. Yeah, marry rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the takeaway. <laughs> what um, What are some of the other strategies that you talk about for building your own wealth? Is that investments, property? Investing is my favourite topic in the entire world. I don't think that that is a
2: secret, but I think it really goes back to budget and cash flow as mm-hmm. a basis. So I think so many times as women particularly we want to get ahead of ourselves because we already feel behind. So we want to like turbocharge and jump straight into the deep end and yeah. go, oh my gosh, like I've been missing out for so long. I'm going to go straight for my super or I'm going to go straight for, oh, I'm going to download this Shazzy's investing app and I'm going to start investing. Mm-hmm. Not going to go hard on the crypto. <laughs> crypto is probably not my thing, but like you do, you boo. <laughs> so I think it's about actually going back to basics and going, this is, you know, a bit boring, but let's start with what do you spend? What do you earn? What do you owe? What do you actually own? How can we actually, you know, create those building blocks at the base so that when you do start investing or you do start looking at your super and you do start contributing, those things are sustainable. Mm -hmm. So many times I have had messages from people who are so excited to start their investing journey and they're like, I put my first $1,000 in, I'm so proud of myself. And I'm like, I'm proud of you too. And then a couple of months later, they're like, it's so annoying. I had to pull it all out and I'm often you know quite pervy want to have a convo with our community and I'm like why they're like because you know I really like something popped up and I needed to pay for it and I was like if we had started at the foundations and you had an emergency fund and you had a really clear understanding of what was coming and going out you would never have been in the position where you needed to dispose of an asset when it wasn't performing Mm -hmm. and I think that we need to remember that to put ourselves in the best possible position. Sometimes we have to do the boring work before we mm. actually get to investing. So I think if I was doing you know, a hygiene check on someone, I'd go, all right, do you understand what you earn? And most people could turn around and be like, yep, I earn $65,000 a year. And you go, great, how much do you spend each year? And they go, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and so you go, all right, we need to understand that number. What actually leaves your bank account? And so many times we feel overwhelmed because I, I didn't used to like doing this. Mm look at your budget, you would be like, ah, don't want to. It's I'm so embarrassing, confronting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's confronting, it feels icky. I remind myself that, wow, how am I spending $11 a day on coffee? Mm-hmm. That does add up, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Um, how am I getting all of this like, stuff that just is compounding? So I think we need to also change our mindsets around our budgets and go, all right, well, it's actually not confronting, it's not embarrassing, it's not anything, what it actually is, is a really good indicator of my values. Do I like coffee? Yeah, I do. Am I going to change that? Probably not. That's okay. That's not a problem at all because I think too many times we've had ingrained that to be financially savvy, you don't buy coffee out. Mm-hmm. To be financially yep. savvy, you don't you know, buy clothes and shoes and have, have I guess, interests mm. outside of saving, right? So I think looking at your budget and going, well, actually, a budget is not a strict set tool to keep me on track. It's actually... A review document Mm. of where my money flows and asking yourself, am I happy that my money is flowing in that way? And I look at it and you might look at my budget and go, well, V, I would never spend that much on coffee. And I might look at your budget and be like, well, I'd never go to the gym. So don't know why you're wasting money on that. Uh (laughs) So I think it's really important to remember that your budget is yours. But if you can fully understand what's coming into your account and then also what's leaving and whether you're okay with it or not, that's, that's the peak. It's not about going, oh, well, this month we're only going to do, you know, $150 a week on groceries. Mm-hmm. My husband and I are massive foodies. Like, we love fresh food. Like, we thrive off it. Mm-hmm. If we were to do budget meal planning it just wouldn't work for us. I've tried it before. I don't like pre-prepared like meals. I don't like meal prepping. I don't like any of those things. Whereas my best friend is so good at that. I don't know how she does it. She is an actual wizard, but that's not going to work for Mm -hmm. me. So maybe my grocery budget isn't where I'm cutting down. Maybe it's somewhere else that I go, well, actually, I don't actually care that much about that. Can't believe I'm spending that much. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about looking at your budget first Mm. and seeing it as a tool to understand where your cash is flowing because the second you know where your cash is flowing you know if you have surplus and if you have surplus you then can create an emergency fund or pay down some more debt Mm. and put yourself on the track to being financially secure Mm. but if you bury your head in the sand about that budgeting component it's all going to come falling down at some point when you start allocating money to things that are not sustainable.
1: I love the idea of not having finance live in this bubble and looking at it as part of who you are as a person and using it as a tool to identify what you value and then sort of retrofitting what your future budget may look like around that. And I think a lot of people might sit down to do that activity and they've got a lot of the messages that have been ingrained in them from mainstream media about avocado toast if you're in your 30s. And that your behaviours are somewhat Do you know if bad. you don't
2: eat avocado toast Mace. every weekend for 10 years, get this, still can't afford a property.
1: 100%. <laughs> I've heard some really interesting stats about salary versus price of house um, compared to prior generations. Do you want to dive into that? Because yes. I think that's <coughs> a very validating moment for a lot of 20 and 30-somethings who are constantly told... Have you heard this from me recently? I haven't heard it from okay. you, but I've, I was gonna I've say, done a lot of my own research I was in this gonna space say I to argue with my parents. Done,
2: <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah, I like having arguments with people when I know I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's I have to do a lot of research. Um, and earlier this year I released my book, Property with She's yep. on the Money. So I'm a bit of a psycho when it comes to property stats and facts at this point in time. So if we go back to 1975, the average property was 5 or 6 times the annual income however today in melbourne and sydney the average property price is between 12 and 24 times the average income and if you go all right well all the boomers are going to jump in here and be like well times have changed your interest rates are so much lower even right now my I got my first interest rate it was 18 and i like, sit down jerry because if our incomes had kept up with the same level of inflation as our property prices had the average income in australia today would be One hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars a year, but it is not. Or sorry, I mean median when I say that. But the median income would be one hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars a year, but it is not. Is sixty-five thousand dollars a year? So how on earth are we meant to, on the average income by the average house? It does not exist. Like this white picket fence dream that we all have. Like I'm not here to burst a bubble, but I also am, so that we can be a bit realistic, Mm -hmm. because. I'm so sick of our generation being told that we are, you know, not frugal enough and we don't save enough and, you know, our values Mm. are absolutely skewed and we don't have our heads screwed on when in reality, even if we sit down and do the maths and we Mm. are so committed for some people, that's still not the reality. And I, I like the example of, you know, the Simpsons, I wasn't allowed to watch it as a kid. So I just find it really novel today. Um, but the Simpsons are a perfect example of this, right? You've got Homer and Marge, Marge doesn't work. Homer, he's just got a blue-collar job. He works in a factory. But he has purchased a house, have a family car. They have three kids. They're able to take those kids on a holiday each year. Might not be a big, fancy international European adventure, Mm. but, like, they're going on a holiday. They're Somewhat, let's just romanticise it here, enjoying each other's company (laughs) and able to put food on the table each and every Mm. single day. You don't see that they are struggling in any way. That is impossible today. So you couldn't have this Simpsons family exist Mm. in 2024. If a dad is just working a blue-collar job with an average income, you cannot buy a property. A car is a stretch. Putting good food on the table each and every single day is hard. Putting kids through education makes it even harder. And you just go, wow, the reality of the world has changed. Mm. But I don't think a lot of people's mentalities, especially people who got to experience buying their first home for $150,000 and then they sold it for $2 million. Mm -hmm.
1: Um,
2: They don't really understand
1: how much it's changed because they haven't been part of that. Yep, I remember when I bought my first home and it wasn't until that many years ago, I was in my thirties when Mm. I bought that home. And for anyone listening, I had long given up on that dream in my twenties because I was earning $32,000 a year in my first job Mm and that was probably 15, 16 years ago, my first full-time job out of uni, I could barely afford my rent and food. Mm. We, Bree and I and our old co-founder, we used to basically get paid on rotation, thank <laughs> Christ, because someone was always getting money in and we would help each other out. That's
2: so sweet, though. It, it was very lovely. <laughs> like We
1: were very lucky to have supportive girlfriends. No but I remember my neighbour, he lived three doors down and he would have been in his 80s just would not stop talking to me about the fact that he once owned my house and he'd bought it for $25,000. See, Jerry, sit down. Jerry, fuck off. That's <laughs> what I wanted to say. I spent significantly more purchasing that home and I yeah. was, you know, dying under the debt of my mortgage. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably made a decision that I shouldn't have got myself into when I bought that first home mm-hmm. because that was stressful enough. Um, you know just trying to stay on top of the repayments even when you're earning a good salary and yeah. you qualify for the loan i think we can all this um, keeping up with the joneses mentality gets the better of us and it's something that you have to learn often by going through and making mistakes yeah. mm. my goal and a lot of our goals with this whole series but particularly this episode is to help people listening not make mistakes that we have made previously and not gatekeep information and mm. just talk really openly and honestly about our own I love financial it. journeys. I'm obsessed.
2: I, I love it. The second know. you guys were like, do you want to come on? I was like, yes, yes. obviously <laughs> this is what I live for. But I think also in saying that we also need to be very kind to past self because yeah. you were doing the best that you could. Mm. Like you thought when you bought that mm. house that like that was like peak, right? Like that was you were doing the best thing. It's going to be a really good long term play. And I'm sure it was. But like, we're all just doing the best that we can with the tools and resources we have. And like, often people will be like, oh, do you regret getting in debt, V? Mm. Like, yeah, I mean, pragmatically, yes. But also it taught me a lot Mm -hmm. about the value of money. It taught me a lot about being able to empathize with my community who are also in debt, because if you've never been there, you kind of go, oh, well, you would just start paying it off, Mm. right? Like you just make a really linear plan. When in reality, like, I just remember so many times just feeling so embarrassed and so awful and I'd wake up at 3 a.m. going, what if for some reason I can't make my debt repayment and then the bank jobs me in and I go to jail? Like I would just yeah. I would it's extrapolate spiral. it out in my mind. Is that actually gonna happen? No, because nothing that you think at 3 a.m. is reality, <laughs> but that's not the Don't point. Trust 3 you. <laughs> no, no, never. Nothing good happens after midnight, never. I'm telling you right now. But I think it's really important to not crucify our past decisions and even if you're in debt right now and going, Oh, this sucks, mm. well, that's okay. Past you made some decisions that today you wouldn't make, but you were doing the best thing that you could for yourself at that time. And now you have different tools and resources. We can pivot and we can change. Mm. And I guess the best thing about money stories is like and money stories like my favorite thing to talk about. It's kind of your underlying beliefs, values Uh and behaviors around money that Mm. you can't control because you didn't wake up one day and choose them the thing with money stories is you can't change what happened, but you can rewrite the path to go forward. Mm. You can decide to be good at money. And I think that often people tell themselves this narrative of like, I'm not good at money. And like Why? Mm. Everyone can be good at money. I promise it's not about being good at maths. Like I used to fight with my dad about my times tables at the dining table and like cry and literally not be the best at it. But finance and getting your financial life together isn't about being good at maths it's actually about being good at logic and being able to create a plan and be honest with yourself we all have a calculator in our back pocket nowadays Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to my grade five teacher like i think it's so important to just give yourself that grace and go well actually doesn't matter where you're starting. You're mm-hmm. starting from somewhere. Put your blinkers on. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't compare yourself to anybody else because you don't even know where they're at in their journey. No.
1: And think of it as a skill. I don't know why we put so much pressure on ourselves, particularly when it comes to finance, to just be perfect at it from day one. You'll, You'll never be perfect at it. Think I'm still about, not perfect at it. Exactly. And I literally and you're run the, the biggest money
2: community in the country.
1: Like <laughs> yeah. what? Compare it to everything you've learned. Like Even the most trivial things like doing your hair you sucked at it one day, oh, 10 yeah, years Jean, later, yeah. you were much better at it. Please like, don't look at my high school photos. Oh, God, right? we all made some bad decisions. <laughs> you know what I used to be
2: really bad at? Tan. Oh, yeah, i oh, oh, been there too. Turns out I thought you only needed to tan your legs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> top deck yeah. yeah love
2: it top deck vibes and <laughs> so, so all
0: good. my formal photos are heinous oh
1: yeah <laughs> i think we've got some of them in the archive too actually i know we do
0: Brie. oh my god yeah yeah one of our sayings is there's no such thing as a stupid question which obviously of course is a cliche but i have to apply that to myself you know i'm 36 and i'm in a very privileged position that i have a wealth management company i have really good accountants yeah but i still have to force myself to sit in those meetings because they're they're pretty boring. They're boring, aren't they? So boring. See, I used to
2: try so hard to make them
0: interesting. I'd be like, "Do you just want the cliff notes on this?" And most of my clients would be like, "Yep." yep. And I'd be like, "Great." And ask questions. Ask all the stupid yeah. questions. Why are you not making me money? Do you suck at your job? Uh, and they'll be like, "No, Brie, it's the economy." And you'll be like, "Well, you've always got an excuse, don't you?" <laughs> um, going back to property, yes, um, because obviously it is really challenging. But I'm assuming there's still people out there who are like, yes, I know, but I still really want to buy something.
2: Yeah, and I want you to buy something too. It just looks a bit
0: different, hey. Are there any tips that you can suggest for people – how they can research more or what they can start to do, even if they're not in the position to buy something now, what they can start doing now to set themselves up to maybe be able to buy something in the future or to maybe not make some of the same mistakes that we made Mm -hmm. where they buy something they can't afford or pay too much in stamp duty. We tried it for you guys. (laughs) Bad idea. Just don't do it.
2: Um, Stamp duty. Also, understand what that is because that is terrifying, Um, but I think it goes back to what i was saying before about budget and cash flow again so boring but understanding what's coming in your account and then what's leaving your account and what you have Mm -hmm. the power to save and invest it is going to take you longer to save a deposit than the two or three years that you had envisioned a couple of years ago it would take like i think so many of us we enter our early 20s and we go I'm gonna party for a while, not gonna take anything too seriously. And then when I'm like 25 or I start to get serious, I'm gonna save for a few years and I'll definitely buy property before 30. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that's probably not gonna work. It is taking my clients between six and 10 years to save their deposits if they are saving it 100% on their own. I would say also understand how you will purchase that house when you purchase it. Have aspirational conversations. Are you actually in a position or the very privileged position, where a guarantor might step up. Mm -hmm. You've got a parent or a family member who has said, well, actually, I really want to help you here. Mm -hmm. Understand that and what that means and what they would need from you, because I'm a very big believer in not just stepping into a guarantor loan, because obviously that's fantastic. But can we prove to ourselves that we have the capacity to pay back that mortgage? Can we prove to ourselves that we have the capacity to save a little bit so that we have some money in our offset when we get that loan so that we're not you know, up the financial creek. So I think it's really important to understand that, also understand what types of loan and government schemes are existing that could Mm -hmm. benefit you, because a lot of the time people have this idea in their head that you need to have a minimum of 20% to buy a house. Mm and I want you to have 20%, it doesn't mean I want to spend it all on the property. Mm. At the moment, a lot of people that we're buying with are 10% deposits. We might be paying a little bit of LMI. Depending on their financial situation and their job, they might actually not have to pay the LMI, but there are good ways to get in earlier than you think, so understand what they look like. Because do you know how many people we've sat down with at Zella Money and been like, oh, yeah, 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 you actually don't need this full 20%. We could like do it with the 10% and actually we can take this additional 10%, pop that in your offset, that's great. And they're like, wait, what? I've been literally Mm -hmm. killing myself for the last 12 months to get this final 10% Mm -hmm. and you're saying I don't need it. Uh (laughs) That's crazy. Talk to a broker before you even finish saving so that you kind of have a bit of a plan and be realistic about what type of property you're purchasing. I'm sorry, but the property my dad purchased for his first house, Mm. um, three bedroom, gorgeous house, never gonna happen for me. So what does that actually look like? And instead of fantasizing and going on realestate.com.au or domain or whatever platform you're on and looking at what's for sale, switch tabs and look at what has sold Mm. because the sold prices will be there and they are far more realistic For what you're actually looking for, because sometimes the property will be listed at like five fifty, mm. and you'll be like, "That makes sense." Mm. And you go to the, and you go to the auction, and then you're disheartened because it went for six fifty, and you're like, "Well, that was out of my budget." Mm. So, what are properties in the area that you want selling for? And then, if you want to take it a step further, make a spreadsheet and. Put down the sold properties in one column, what they sold for, what your budget is, and then why you would have purchased that property. Mm. So you would have purchased that property because you're like, oh, the kitchen wasn't that great, but it was north facing and it had a really beautiful courtyard. You're going to find your values pop up really quickly on the things that you would compromise Mm. and then the things that you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So for my husband and I, when we were buying, we found out really quickly that in my head, I thought I wanted off street parking and then when we started looking at properties that obviously add significant cost, mm. every property I looked at, I was like, oh, I actually care about the garden space. Yeah. Like I, that street, I can park on street, I'm fine with that. My car's still from 2006, I haven't changed it yet. Um, so she's fine on street. <laughs> so I think really having those nuanced conversations with yourself, mm. but doing them before you've got the deposit so that you've yeah. got this really clear idea of what you wanna buy, mm. it can be aspirational. And don't forget, you can change your mind later just because you've planned to buy an apartment Mm -hmm. in the CBD you might pivot once you've spoken to a good broker and they might introduce you to a buyer's advocate and they're like so we're thinking Mm. you buy a little bit further out and that could be a stepping stone into your next property and you might go actually fantastic Mm. so I think it's have the conversations early talk to your friends who have also purchased property about their journey and you know the costs that they saw pop up unexpectedly talk to you know lots of property people and even listen to just podcast content oh. on it like Podcasts it's so
1: helpful books for beginners oh. everyone you feel like an idiot buying it best $19 you'll ever spend 100% go and rent mm. it from a go get it from the library no, It's free it's free there's so much even if you are or, progressed in your journey have you that seen you that learn. spotify has recently introduced audiobooks so if oh, you have yes. a spotify uh, membership
2: they're all free yep I need to talk to Spotify about whether I get royalties on that or not. 100% uh, you should be. Sorry, we're, you're just giving my book away for free? Mm. All right, I mean, Slay,
1: but like. <laughs> I mean, great do I people getting access this? to the That's advice, that you spent your time writing that book, so let's have a chat with Spotify. Weird, yeah.
0: weird, but okay. The other one that we really want to talk about that I think is. Is going to be relevant to our listeners and is relevant to a lot of people we've been talking to. Is about the hex debt, yeah. and in my mind, when I went through uni, I'm like the hex debt. it's hex is the best loan you can get. Yeah, but there's been changes recently. I still believe that. Okay, just great, so so no. that's good. Still to know. think it's the best loan you can get, but there's been changes recently that I don't know if everyone is aware of what they are and how they can affect their own personal position. Do you are mind you going talking into that about a little the
2: bit? The indexation, indexation. rate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the indexation rate. Um, it's important to understand that that actually fluctuates and once our economy slows down a little bit and settles our indexation rate hopefully is going to fall and we'll be back in the realm of you know having these 2 to 4% indexation rates each and every single year on our hex debt so to me, a hex debt is kind of a no-brainer if you want to get a good education. Before you just go and jump into uni, though, I do think you should be questioning whether you actually want to go to uni. Because mm-hmm. I speak to so many people who are like, "Oh, I did it because like I was just going to chuck it on hex, and then they've got twenty grand worth of hex, and they really didn't want to do medicine, <laughs> um, or they really <laughs> didn't want to do this particular degree, or they didn't know what to do, so they just went into arts, and then they've got this arts degree that they're like." Never going to use that, but I am going to pay for it. So think about it before you go into it. From a financial perspective, there isn't actually any interest payable on that loan. One of the sexiest things about it is you only have to start paying it back when you reach a certain income amount. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if everything went down the drain and financially you are in a really big pickle and you've lost your job Mm. don't worry hex isn't going to chase you up there's no set time frame on paying it back which is really nice but indexation happens every year to make sure that those debts are keeping up with inflation and so for me I didn't actually pay any additional of my hex off when that happened, because I was like, if you're doing that to my hex, you're going to be doing that to my home loan. And I sure as hell no, I would prefer it coming off my home loan than oh. my hex. So mm-hmm. for me, I didn't make any changes, but it really freaked a lot of people out mm-hmm. because it was one of the first times they had actually thought about it. Because to have 7.1% indexation happen, you kind of go, wait, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't want interest on my loan. In reality you have actually been paying indexation for every year you've had it anyway it's usually just an amount of two or 2.5 percent that you've never really like blinked at because you're Mm. like oh whatever that's fine no worries seven starts to make you you take it seriously Mm. and a lot of people freaked out but that's not a forever number next year's indexation rate I am assuming is going to be about five because indexation rates are based on the last two years of financial performance Mm -hmm. not just one I reckon it'll be about five and then a year after that it'll probably drop back down to
0: two to three and a half so we don't need to freak out too much I don't (laughs) think we have to
2: freak out at all it does get added the problem with indexation though is it makes you freak out because let's be honest 7% whether it's indexation or it's interest you are paying it Mm -hmm. and it is not that sexy and you sometimes look at it and go but i didn't even pay that much off this year and i'm going Mm. backwards importantly it's one of the loans that mortgage brokers and banks don't care so much about so my hex debt is still obnoxiously high because I've never prioritized it and should. Um, I'm still sitting on like I think seventy or eighty thousand dollars worth of hex debt because it was like way higher than that. We were like real nerdy, um, and I took on a lot of it. But even with that amount of hex debt, it didn't impact my borrowing capacity to get into a first home. Earlier. And I think a lot of people assume, oh, I really need to get rid of that debt before I buy a home. Please talk to a broker Mm -hmm. or your bank before you make that decision. Because when I did the maths on even mine, my borrowing capacity only went down like $60,000. And I was kind of like, well, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And I'd much prefer, you know, like let's be honest, at that time when I think I got our house, I had $95,000 worth of hex debt. Mm. You're telling me that I would have to pay off $95,000 to get $60,000 more capacity on a loan. Mm -hmm. If I've got $95,000, I'm putting it into my mortgage and not worrying about that 60 grand, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So I think you need to do the maths. You need to understand what it means and not just assume debt equals no house because that's not the reality. Banks go, oh, well, hex is an okay debt to have. The opposite is true if you've got personal debt. If you had that Mm -hmm. much personal debt, bank is going to look at you and be like, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, But that's where you want to have a good trusted broker Mm. to talk to you about... All right, well, this is gonna impact you here and this is gonna impact you there. So it's it's interesting how it works, but I wouldn't worry too much about HEX. Mm. What I would worry about is, you know, do you actually have additional cash flow coming in? Lots of my past clients when I was a financial advisor didn't prioritize their HEX, but did prioritize investing mm-hmm. because the return on their investment portfolios was higher than what their hex debt return mm-hmm. was. So even this year, for an example. Hex debt was indexed at 7.1% and obviously the Australian share market has been hit but on average over the last 30 years the Australian share market has returned at 9.8%. So you look at the two and you go, Mm. actually long term, I always use the phrase when in doubt just zoom out and look at the big picture (laughs) which is going to make more sense for me. Mm. Triggering something that's giving me anxiety because I don't know enough about it or investing for the long term. There's obviously no right or wrong you do you, you can absolutely pay it off because if it's one of those things that is keeping you up at night and you can't sleep Mm -hmm. over it, then we need to deal with it. it. (laughs) But if you look at it and go, well, I'm planning on making this financial decision or that financial decision, do the maths do it properly get some professionals involved and then make the decision.
0: I think that's really good advice and I think that'll give people a lot of comfort. Hopefully because also mortgage
2: like- brokers are free. So I think a lot mm. of people will assume that you need like a wealth management yeah. company to like sit down and do the maths for you. You go to a mortgage broker. They're hoping that at some point you'll convert mm-hmm. to being a mortgage owner and therefore they'll get paid by the banks. Mm. Until then, shoot them a message be like this is my plan, I want to buy, I want to do this. How does my hex impact
0: that? And they'll let you know, and that could be a completely free process. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think what you touched on there is interesting as well. I think a lot of the time when we have debt, it feels risky. Yeah. And I think everyone has it's a scary different, scary, but everyone has a different risk profile. And you might not know what your risk profile was. My life motto is risk it for the biscuit. I had that on the back of the jumper, <laughs> on the back of the jacket. It's kind of, I'm like, I like taking risks. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm happy to back myself. You're my dream client. However, <laughs> it's changed. My risk yeah. profile has evolved. And it's particularly in the last years. I was few gonna years. say, is it because you've had kids? I think so. Yeah. And it's not even just money. I was saying to Jess the other day, no, it's life. Like going so. skiing. I'm scared of going skiing. We're all scared of dying what? Because of a sudden like, like oh if I actually hurt myself or if I actually like something bad happens There's there's, there's more to lose.
2: Why is it that (laughs) I feel exactly the same way? This is so first world about skiing, but my husband's still chucking himself off the side of literally every black run. And I'm like, you could die, sir. (laughs)
0: Right? So funny. So when it comes to working out what your risk profile is like, do you have any tips on how you can. Yeah, there's tools online. You can
2: work it out for free. So if you just type in risk profile survey or risk profile questionnaire, a heap of free ones will come up for you to ascertain, I guess, where you sit on whether you're willing to take on risk or not. And you might sit down and be like, V, I'm not willing to take on risk at all. I'm really conservative. And then you might do your risk profile and realise – yeah, you're quite conservative, but you actually understand the share market and you are willing to put, you know, some of your money into the share market and expose it. Whereas some other people are like, no, 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 cash is best. Like, I basically have it under my bed and hidden in my mattress um, and I'm not willing to move it. <laughs> so understanding that about yourself, not to plug my own podcast, but I did a whole episode on understanding your risk profile, mm-hmm. if you want to look that up. And I would start there and then honestly going and I literally say in that episode too. I'm like, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Just Google free risk profile investing questionnaire mm. and it will tell you how to do it and spit out what, I guess, profile you are. Mm. And so the profiles go from like ultra conservative all the way up to, uh, you know, they call it an aggressive investor, which I hate because I just go, aggressive sounds so aggressive. Yeah. But it negative I mean. right but it actually just means you're willing to take on risk and expose more of your money mm. to the share market or more of your money to risk and that doesn't necessarily mean bad things because the more risk you take on arguably the more return you could achieve mm. and the less risk you take on the less return so it's all going to work out but yeah honestly that's probably the worst advice you've ever gotten from me google it
1: <laughs> i like it I'll i like it. it too <laughs> i like that this breaking down the barriers between us and the information like a lot of it is just out there i'd make so much
2: more money if i was like okay well i have a product like no absolutely not it's like my favorite website as well is the moneysmart.gov website it's great it is so good they have put so much time energy and effort into making it really understandable but there's so many free calculators and so many free tools and there's Mm -hmm. a free budget on there and I think my favorite thing about it is it's not biased you know it's not coming from a product Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's not coming from a company that wants to sell you something or lead you down a particular garden path and so often in my content I refer to that Not because I don't have a free budget tool on my own website, but I really want you to trust yourself and not have a lot of external input when it comes to talking about money and getting your stuff together. Mm. Because so many times we go, oh, I got all my stuff together and then you're disheartened. Because, you know, there's a few companies out there that do lots of comparisons and they'll do comparisons of insurance and they'll do comparisons of savings accounts and superannuation. And you think you're doing the right thing because the Mm. meerkat mascot is really cute and (laughs) then you realise that what is showing up on that website is actually who's sponsored Mm -hmm. the page as opposed to what is actually the best savings account for you, what is actually the best investment account or, you know, superannuation fund. And so I think being really wary and understanding that if it's a product that sells product or Mm -hmm. wants to sell you something, they're usually not going to put your best foot forward or they're not going to put your best... um, I guess they're not going to care too much about the outcome. They're going to care what commissions they get paid. So for me, the Money Smart website. And then in September 2022, the government introduced the My Super Tool. Mm. And it's literally an apples for apples free comparison tool. And my favourite part about that, because obviously... I'm lazy, um, is they go, here are the top five performing funds Mm. in Australia. Here are the bottom five performing funds. And I always tell my community, if you're in the bottom five, really have a good hard think about it. If you're really lazy, go and have a look at the website and see what's performing well. Because I think so many times, especially as women, we get analysis paralysis. If I said, look at your super, you'd be like, well, I don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. Start there.
1: I like that. Um, When we're talking about growing our wealth and this concept of investing, I think a lot of people don't quite know where to start. They feel like they don't understand even the basic concepts of it. Yep. And there's this idea of um, having debt and spending money on investing or contributing money to your investment portfolio. They seem counterintuitive to some yep. people. Starting, assuming that someone listening is going to have some form of debt, whether it's credit card, personal loan, yep. hex or mortgage. What's the basic getting started in your investment journey advice. Okay, so
2: step back for two seconds. Understand there's good and bad debt Mm -hmm. first. So good debt would be things like HECS and your mortgage. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a HECS and a mortgage, um, it doesn't mean you can't invest. If you've got personal debt or credit card debt, I would... I would personally be trying to tackle that first because the interest rate on that debt is so significantly higher than what you can earn from investing, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And paying off debt to me is an investment in itself and it teaches you that you can save and invest because you've clearly smashed down that debt and the second that's gone, you can contribute those funds to investing the next thing is don't get analysis paralysis so like zoom out and go well why do i want to invest you go okay well i want to invest for my future or maybe you want to invest because you know in 10 years you want to buy your first property so understand that then go all right well how lazy am i (laughs) do i want to be a trading girly am i someone who's going to log into an investment platform every single day and trade trade stocks Mm -hmm. No, I don't even do that. Well, I do do that sometimes Mm -hmm. for fun, but it is fun only. Do I want to manage my own portfolio where I have direct shares, but they require, you know, ongoing maintenance and rebalancing and evaluation because, you know, one of them might stop performing and then you've got to make a decision about switching it out. It's what a lot of wealth management companies do and it's why people pay wealth management companies so much. Mm -hmm. Can you do it? Absolutely you can, but research tells us that you're – portfolio performance will be significantly lower if you're doing that and you're not educated Mm -hmm. as in you're not doing that for work the next is you might go all right well I want a more hands-off approach and you might pick a managed fund or an exchange-traded fund and both of those things sound really Mm. complex but I promise they're not an ETF is literally exchange-traded fund and it is a basket of shares that a fund manager Mm. has picked for you and you go I like the idea of that ETF and what you hold and if something isn't performing they switch it out for you Mm -hmm. and that's relatively Mm -hmm. sexy so we like that so work out the type of investment you want to make because I think so many times we start going I'm going to go to Google what's a good investment and then we're accidentally in crypto or we are you know buying specific shares or we found ourselves on a Reddit forum and we're like reading through what other people have bought but that's not us so we want to understand the type of asset we want to purchase and our budget, because a lot of platforms these days have essentially barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. So these are just examples. They're not like sponsored or anything like that. It's just me going, here's a tangible example. A platform like self-wealth, mm-hmm. like if you Google Google. Uh, investing platform Mm. they'll come up they're great they do you know what they say they do on the box they are a little bit more technical they provide a lot of research in addition to a lot of other platforms Mm. but you have to have a minimum of five hundred dollars to invest with them compare that to a platform like sharesies which is a little bit more user-friendly it's more app-based less like they're doing the research in the background but less overwhelming research for you you can invest as little as one cent So if you're going, you know, I actually am a bit more of a technical investor, Victoria. I do want to be provided with those reports. I do want to go down that route of like kind of self-managing a whole portfolio, well, maybe Mm -hmm. the first option makes the most sense for you. There's six million out there. That's definitely not a recommendation. But if that's not working, and you go, that's a bit much, maybe you want to start with your first five bucks on sharesies. Mm. And you go, well, actually, I don't really want to put my money where my mouth is right now. It's investing for the very first time. $500 could be your life savings. Maybe we actually go and put five bucks in an ETF and see what that does Mm -hmm. for three months. And we start building up from there. I, I really like the idea of Uh, micro investing platforms Mm -hmm. as well that's where you invest really small amounts over a longer period of time but to me they're kind of like a gateway drug to investing because the second you do that you're a bit worried but then you start to get really comfy with it mm. and you start adding another $10 a week or a month and then you know that $10 turns to $100 mm. and then all of a sudden you go no 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 I understand this ETF and this one and I've bought these and that makes sense and I'm not too worried because it's again not my life savings. Mm. My biggest tip when starting to invest would be take the pressure off and stop trying to put your entire life savings in. Lots of people will go oh my gosh V, have started listening to your podcast and I'll be like Slay great idea. They'll be like I've got 20 grand in savings but now I'm so worried it's not working for me and I want to invest it that's the worst idea you've ever had Mm -hmm. not because it's not practical like you could go see a financial Mm. advisor have it invested perfectly right it would be fine but you're not confident Mm. so start small and grow because that's sustainable Mm. over your lifetime do you know how many people invest that life savings they see the market go down one year like over the last two years we have been absolutely pummeled and they go oh my gosh, I need to dispose of all my assets. I can't believe my 20 is now 18 and I don't want to lose any more and they convert it back to cash and never invest again because they've had the worst experience Mm -hmm. ever. Whereas if you are an educated investor, you understand that some years you're going to have positives, some years you're going to have negatives. I have a share portfolio personally that when I log in and it's negative, I still feel sick. Mm -hmm. I look at it and I go, oh, I hate that what have I done wrong and then I have to remind myself one Victoria you're an ex-financial advisor you should know better than this but two when in doubt zoom out and then I look at the overall performance of my portfolio and like I've had it invested for 10 years and I'm like she's looking pretty good when you you zoom out Mm. so I think really starting small and then growing because like from little things big things really do grow yeah and a lot of the time people go can't retire for 10 bucks Victoria what's the point Mm -hmm. you go yeah but one day you've already set up this beautiful like I guess pathway to investing you're already doing it one day Mm. when you get that pay rise or have some additional cash or you know finally decide that you know school fees are over Mm. and you can allocate that money somewhere else you're now in a position to scale it Mm. instead of start from scratch and starting from scratch is the hardest part so I think having a platform that you can scale is the most important thing to me and yes start with well, what do I actually want to buy? And then how do I want to buy it mm. is is how I would do it. Whereas a lot of people, if they aren't investors, their first question to me is like, what do I invest in so that I'm financially secure? And I go, well,
0: I wish I could answer that, but it's different for everybody. 100%. I think what you touched on there, which is really nice, is this idea of get rich slow. You know, we're always looking for that get rich quick mm-hmm.
2: It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in business, you get poor, in investing. You get poor real quick too. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> exactly. So I just think that's a nice key takeaway just to remember that good things take time and, yeah, from small things, big things grow. Someone fully, so we got this massive complaint at she's on the money maybe like, mm-hmm. what was it,
2: Maddie, like three weeks ago, this really ranty email and they were I'm so disappointed i started investing i invested my first thousand dollars and like the returns aren't even able to take me out for dinner yet victoria like Mm. what's the point you said that i could create wealth and that was when i just went you have not listened to enough of my content you need to take a step back and realize that one that makes sense for the economy Mm. at the moment two congrats on your first thousand dollars that is actually so impressive but investing You're not going to see any sexy returns for the first seven years. So compound interest, it's like, according to Einstein, the seventh wonder of the world. However, the worst thing is, as humans, we want gratification today Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we are the worst at delayed gratification and investing Mm -hmm. is all about delayed gratification so sometimes we get so excited about our investing journey you set it all up you're so keen you've done this first thousand dollars and you're just like holy hell I'm gonna kill it and then you look at it in 12 months and you're like what's that what do you mean it's only like one thousand and five dollars or something not that impressive Mm. but it's actually the power of time because in that seven to ten years Mm. If we look at past performance of the market, if you don't even contribute another dollar, that money will have doubled. And so you really need to just like sit down and go, all right, well, now I do have to have some delayed gratification. Does Mm. it feel good? No. I'm an ADHD X financial advice girly. I still want my performance. I wanna log in and be like, I have millions.
1: Green arrows. Yeah, green (laughs) arrows
2: up. Like Look at all these charts going up. And like, that's just not how it works. So I think we have to set realistic expectations too.
1: I would like to pick your brain about ethical investing. Yes. So I've noticed two trends emerge over the last Mm -hmm. sort of five to 10 years. Firstly, the women around me are starting to have conversations about investing. And I preface, like I really highlight the word starting, Mm -hmm. but I think that's a fantastic shift. What I notice about the difference in conversations between a lot of the men and women around me is Mm -hmm. that there is more of a focus on ethical investment amongst women, Mm -hmm. not always some a lot of the guys i know are focused on that too but yes, if it's i had way to more common yeah if i had to yeah. stereotype i can i can actually give you some you research you know where i'm going <laughs> with this right i would love to know in your expert opinion are we further disadvantaging ourselves by having a focus on investing more ethically than our not always but often male counterparts Who are throwing a lot of their money into fossil fuels and seeing fantastic returns how do we sort of make peace with these potential outcomes so first things first ethical portfolios do not underperform
2: when compared to normal portfolios which is fantastic um i think the fact that i used to own a wealth management business called zella money sorry a wealth management business called Zella Wealth. And um, I would only take on clients who would invest ethically because my view as a financial advisor was that I'll manage your money. Like, let's be honest, if someone came in and they had BHP shares that they'd been gifted in 1975, I'm not going to dispose of them. That's a terrible idea mm. financially for that client. Uh-huh. I'll manage them. But if we're buying new stocks, everything that my clients were buying was ethical because from my perspective that's the way the world was going and i'm really proud of that decision because obviously it meant that some clients didn't want to work with me because Mm. we weren't on the same page but i didn't really mind Mm -hmm. because we weren't on the same page anyway so for me ethical investing is really smart but it's also it's it's the way of the future like Businesses are now prioritizing that, investors are prioritizing that, shareholders are prioritizing that. When ethical investing, like 15 years ago, started to take off, they were charging a lot more. Like if you went for an ETF that was ethical, the fees on that would be so much more significant because to be honest, it did take more time, energy, and research to understand whether they were an ESG portfolio or not. But the thing you need to understand about ethical is it is not a regulated term. Mm -hmm. So unlike organic in Australia, where, you know, you go to the supermarket and there's a little organic sticker on something and you know that it doesn't have A, B, C, D and it's met certain criteria, the word ethical in Australia does not carry that. And what's ethical to me might not be ethical to you. And so I used to have these conversations with clients about, okay, well, let's talk about Mm. ethics. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? And for lots of people, it's not investing in uh, fossil fuels, tobacco, gambling and stuff like that some other clients take it a bit further and they might go well I actually don't want any business that's you know having a negative impact Mm. on the on the economy and there's lots of different ways to work that out but I think my funniest experience with talking to a client about ethical was I had this one client They sent through a consultation form on my website Mm. and in that it was basically like in capital letters, I only want to invest ethically. And I was like, yep, cool, no worries. Like that's what I do anyway. Had this really beautiful like intro conversation Mm. with them, sat down, but they really drilled into me that they were ethical. And I was like, yep, yep, of course, like that's how I invest in this business anyway. Like you're not going to get anything out of me. But like we progressed and we were doing their fact find and like all of this research and we're going through, all right. I want to know from you, Jess, exactly what ethical means. And you know what they said to me? They said, I just don't want to invest in nukes. <laughs> I was like, wait, what?
0: <laughs> so specific. What?
2: <laughs> what? And they're like, don't want to support the Russians. And I said, wait, what? Like, ethical, like, are we going to talk about fossil fuels or gambling? Like, you know, yeah. often we we exclude alcohol companies mm-hmm. as well. And they're like, oh, no, I like gambling. I like alcohol. Just no nukes, yeah? And I was like... <laughs> okay, no worries. So I think that's actually a beautiful example of how what ethical means to you and I might be completely Mm. different to somebody else. And I mean, somebody who's, you know, hardcore vegan might invest completely differently again. So we need to be really careful about this term ethical, not because it's, bad but because it's not actually blanket it's so subjective so So if you're looking for i guess quite ethical portfolios going for like esg that is a more regulated term Um, but then also really understanding that in the investing space greenwashing Mm -hmm. is massive So people will use the term green or sustainable Mm -hmm. when they aren't green nor sustainable and there's not a lot you can do about that because that's just the name they've decided to call their company. And so you need to just do a little bit more deep diving and understanding it. Um, and to be honest, in 2024, that's easy because you can Google the company and understand whether you accept what they're doing or not. I
0: should probably just Google
2: this, but what does ESG stand for? Environmental Social Governance. Okay. So it's actually a set of criteria that businesses choose to meet and report on so that you can see if mm. they are you know, environmentally sustainable, if they're socially sustainable, and if they have good governance practices in their business. And so that's something that To me, I always fell back on Mm -hmm. because I'm just real nerdy I like having a structure I like having proof I like being able to go to my clients go no I made this decision for all of these reasons but then kind of to me the ethical thing is the cream on top Mm. so are they treating their staff well are they paying their staff well are they impacting the environment and society well do they have good governance Mm. practices to make sure that that is sustainable to me that's more important
1: than the word ethical I totally agree and I love that answer I think I went on my own journey of discovery and that's what Everything about Mm. self-wealth is. Like it's a constant learning. I'm a big ETF girl too. And there was one, I can't remember the name of it that I was looking at, but it was a focus on environmental sustainability. And when you actually Mm. dove into the portfolio, the number of technology companies in there whose servers alone were using you know, nationwide Mm. levels of water just to power them, they might have like this one tiny sustainability practice that's allowed them to qualify. Yeah. And you just have to... Or they've got like a really good HR program and you're like, wait, what? How did you get in? How did you get in here? Yeah, I think... Everything we've learned today keeps coming back to two fundamental things for me: understanding your values, because they're going to guide a lot of your decision making. And my values mm. might be different to yours, and that's be okay. That's exactly. actually really cool. Yeah, you learn something about yourself. That's an amazing outcome. And research, yeah, mm. but like research doesn't have to be hard. I no. think.
2: You should do honest, research with lots a glass of, of wine. women Oh, that's the only way I research. <laughs> like, are you joking? Um, but I think a lot of women here, you need to do your own research and then they throw their hands in the air and they're like, well, how do I do my own research? And the answer is honestly, start with Google. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what an ETF is, Google it. Understand the structure. Watch some yep. YouTube videos. Listen to a podcast. Now you understand what an ETF is. Great. What ETFs exist? Like, how are they constructed? What are they made up of? And when I say that, I mean... What, what are the names in the list? Because you're correct. Like sometimes you read ethical or sustainable and then think it's fantastic. And then BHP is the number one holding. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Because technically BHP meet a lot of criteria yeah. to be deemed an ethical business mm. because they're great at governance, yeah? They're fantastic at looking after their stuff, screwing the environment but that's not the case yeah but then, out of three, yeah but then there's also like a whole heap of other other practices where you talk to clients and they're like, well I don't really want to support a fuel company and fossil fuels, mm. but they're willing to accept investing in a fossil fuel company who's actually doing a lot of research and development for more sustainable mm-hmm. practices And so to me, I'm in that camp yeah. where, I actually want to support the businesses who are trying to better our environment and our future, even if right now they're not, you know, the best business ever because you can't just turn BHP off, right? Like the world is going around. around. Exactly. (laughs) Like it's not going anywhere. But like I would prefer to support a fossil fuel company where – they are going somewhere and they are trying to move away from what they're currently Mm. doing because they've finally realized how detrimental it is than one that's not going to change so like understanding that as well is quite is quite helpful but like when i say do your research sometimes it can be as basic as listening to a podcast googling terms you don't understand Mm. watching youtube videos like
0: it doesn't have to be academic yeah that's so good i want to ask you one final question because we've been looking at the course you released earlier this year And it's all about setting goals. Yes. Can you give us some sneak peeks or some insider tips on how you can start setting goals?
2: Yes. So I think, again, it goes back to literally everything we've been talking about in this episode. And it's really about your values. Like, I feel like I'm such a goal setter, I'm a planner, I love a list, like love a list, love a notion board, anything that can help me feel productive, like I'm the type of girl that also puts things on my list that I already did so I can like tick, it off. tick them off. Same. And I feel- do that. Yeah, but I think that's important because <laughs> I feel like, oh, the list has already started, like I'm not even starting at the beginning. Um, so. Our best year yet course is really about kind of turbocharging that, but not just saying, Oh, do you want to set some goals? Watch some motivational videos. Like, I've given all of my notion boards, I've given all of my lists and my tips and my tricks. And then in each unit, we've done like my book recommendations of stuff. Because honestly, every time I'm like, Oh, I do this structure, no, I stole it from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give them credit, but I think it's really important to understand, you know, that motivation is not something you're going to wake up with mm. like i think so many times people ask me the question and i'm sure you guys get asked this question all the time too where do you find the motivation you're like i didn't i just started and i think so many times people assume that oh, one day i'll wake up and i'll have it mm. and you don't you actually have to create that structure for yourself and commit to it and i'm a very big believer that one of the highest forms of self-care is actually discipline and Mm -hmm. self-discipline because you don't become self-disciplined immediately overnight. Like, let's be honest, I would love to lay in bed, eat chocolate, Mm. watch movies all day, but self-discipline to me is a really high form of self-care because it's getting me to where I want to go. And so teaching you those Mm. things where it's kind of like, I'm not going to teach you how to be self-disciplined, but I'm going to give you all of the structure, that if you actually follow it, you will be successful. And Mm. I think that that can apply to money. It can apply to
0: life. It can apply Mm. to, you know, even just career goals. But I'm very passionate about that at the moment. Oh, that's so good. And then our final question is a question that we're asking everyone who does this podcast, and that is, what does being selfish mean to you?
2: What does being selfish? It means being I guess very self-aware so like I think that the word selfish has a really negative connotation that needs to be reframed which I'm assuming we're all on the same page about because you wouldn't call a podcast selfish (laughs) if you thought it was going to be awful but like sometimes you really need to put yourself forward to get other people ahead and if I look at my career and my development often the successful periods or the periods where I've had the most growth or where I've kind of Gone a bit more introverted and looked after myself and practiced a lot more self care because I've then had a lot more motivation. I've had a lot more energy to give and to create. And every time I seem to be quote selfish on Mm -hmm. paper, my community benefits tenfold. So it's kind of like that theory of like, you can't pour from an empty cup, Mm. but you really can't. Like, Mm. I think a lot of the time we do try. But you're going to burn out. And the second you burn out, you have a bigger impact on your community and a bigger impact on your family and your friends. And to me, I think just being selfish is being self-aware. And I read a stat the other day that only 10% of the human population are actually self-aware. That's very low. Isn't that terrifying? I read something
1: really similar. I don't know where. But it's a terrifying stat.
2: It was, I think, in the Forbes newsletter. Obviously, Mm. that's what everybody reads. But um, (laughs) I think it was there. And I remember being like, that's really low. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Um, But it's it's really cool to put yourself in that driver's seat and be self-aware. But to be self-aware, you have to kind of take time for you. Mm. Otherwise, where else is it going to come from?
0: Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.
1: What a fun time. It was really, really great to talk to you. And thank you for being so candid and honest. Of course. This episode of Selfish was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always would be, Wurundjeri land.